0: Good morning, everyone. I am your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, welcome. Glad to have you with us. If you are a returning listener, glad to have you back. If you do dig what we're doing, please make sure you hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. It's a passive gesture that goes a very long way. That being said, let me bring in my... Well, before that, There will be no M. Toussaint with us this evening. She is resting. Very busy. Last week we did an impromptu show that she was not ready for. Actually, it was this week, right? Anyway, let me bring in someone that you guys have been asking a gajillion questions about. My homie, my co-host, my dog. Please welcome. It is the return of the... Ask Al Robert.
1: <laughs> Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, to Jason Miles. How are you? Doing all right.
0: Welcome back.
1: Thank you for having me back. Good to
0: be uh, back. Well, th- thank you for agreeing to come back. Thank you for putting this show together. This is pretty much your idea. We were having a phone conversation yesterday and you were like oh America seems up to grab hey Jason I think that's a good idea what do you think about that Proposing as an idea well okay, that's Tuesday that's what it sounds like to me <laughs> sounds like Tuesday and then you said let's get Varn and, and, and Gene and Kuban." couldn't get Varn Gene is busy doing his new second job which I will not divulge exactly what it is but he's doing the Lord's work um Someone who is busy trying to stop the Lord's work <laughs> from his office with the window and the Death Star. It's our favorite middle manager. And the first time I think the three of us have been on the screen in probably six months, seven months. Please welcome Deep State Kuba.
1: Kuba. Hello.
2: Hello, everyone. <laughs>
1: Comrade, how are you?
2: Oh, I'm a comrade. Um, I mean, that's really nice to hear because I started off as a potential uh, FBI plant. Um, So the plant has flowered, so to speak. Just working your way up. Good to see you, Pascal. Good to see you as well. How are
1: you? How's Summer?
2: Uh, Summer's well. She's... um, Right now, she's in the middle of her um, law school experience and picking courses for next semester. And apparently, you can take natural resource law or you can take legal ethics, but you cannot take both. Wow. That's how it works in Canada.
0: (laughs) It's all a plot. Um I'm excited to have this conversation with you guys Um, I I did want to hear what Gene had to say but I did talk to him very very briefly today and he seems pretty caught up in what he's been doing Um, but I feel like I I am working with a dream team of TIR people um, because these are the two people that don't ramble and give you succinct responses that are massively intelligent so I'm excited for this uh it's now 2024 a big presidential election year and unlike 2020 the country seems more divided and more invested in this 2024 iteration of political theater than ever the election cycle will be littered with simplistic arguments like do we want to return to fascism the overturning of roe v wade has enabled democrats to fearmonger against an encroaching fascist republican administration as we've seen in places like texas and florida the gop will continue to tell tell tall tales i should have wrote all those together of a socialist reckoning with the progressive wing of the democratic party uh wouldn't that be cool if that was true (laughs) that wants to threaten public safety with an end to law enforcement as we know it and flood the cities with violent terrorist migrants Now, while these may seem almost nonsensical and trivial to people that watch shows like this, there is a real Machiavellian play here with the GOP and how they're using issues like immigration as a political tool to great effect during the heyday of trump's remain in mexico and child separation policies the democratic response was to declare that cities they ran would be democratically run uh that, that would be safe havens for asylum seeking refugees uh much like the original sanctuary movement of the 1980s there was a moralizing tone of to these proclamations of refuge the bus and dump methodology put into place by gop governors in arizona texas and florida was first thought up during the Trump administration in 2018, now in actual practice, it is having disastrous consequences for democratically run municipalities. The backlash in Chicago has been so bad that the president of the Illinois chapter, the the NAACP, made a video espousing far-right sentiments saying, quote, these immigrants who come over here, they've been raping people. They're breaking into homes. They're like savages as well. Unquote. The astronomical cost of housing in major metropolitan areas and the lack of new builds for affordable housing as well has been a hot button issue that won't get the attention that it deserves. The public blight of massive homeless encampments and in states like California, the billions of dollars spent on the issue is causing the voting population to push back against their democratically elected officials uh, in their vain attempt to handle the crisis of homelessness in America foreign wars also loom large on the minds of many of the voting populace for decades the united states has been able to run public relations interference for israel's occupying atrocities against palestine the u.s state department and the culture industry's wall of propaganda that was able to present a portrait of palestinians as stone age religious zealots who want to massacre innocent israelis over biblical birthright is finally starting to crumble under the onslaught of images of dead civilians including thousands of small children and babies after all The patriarchal need to protect children has been used for years for culture wars and lawmaking. Let us not forget it was the fear of Satanists and child molesting teachers and daycare providers that altered the way we view the U.S. Constitution, the Sixth Amendment, when it comes to facing your accuser, video testimony without cross-examination and and after even recanting uh, and more power to district attorneys with so many videos and images of the war crimes in gaza will the gop use these images to score political points the insistence on the israeli government to not back down on the bombing campaign and the us's financial support and reluctance to negotiate a ceasefire is causing many americans to see biden and the dems as supporting the genocidal campaign these are just a few issues that are going to bring people to the polls come november We will see, come November, will we see a return to Donald Trump, another Biden presidency? Regardless of who wins, will we witness another January 6th? After this show, we're going to open up the phone lines for you guys to call in and give us your opinions and predictions. Until then, let's hear what the crew has to say. Pascal Robert, it's been a while. What say you?
1: I say that, listen, we have a real crisis situation in this country right now. In terms of President Biden, there's a major, major focal areas he has to be concerned about. In terms of communities of color, Latin Americans, Blacks, his poll numbers are not doing well at all. The Latin community in the states like Florida, Texas, and others, they seem to be willing to test Trump again because on, on pocketbook issues, they were doing a lot better during Trump's administration. And it's like Biden with the high interest rates and the inflation that he suffered is not exactly doing a good job at convincing people that uh, he is economically a good steward of the the, uh, the pocketbook, issues, pocketbook issues in this country. Not only that, we have a problem in that working class black communities also felt like they were doing better under Trump as well. So there's gonna be a schism in terms of the capacity of the black political class to get people in black communities to be hurried into, into the election booths to support biden regardless of the clarion call to the, the notion that trump is a fascist trump is a fascist the way i look at this also is that combined with the fact that a lot of the youth thought is this disinterested in biden because of the way he's been marshalling the crisis in uh in uh palestine gaza in gaza exactly it's, it's uh it's a dangerous situation for biden yeah and, and uh i'm not necessarily sure that he can weather the storm now i i am not one who particularly is sanguine about trump becoming president again i think trump flirted a little too dangerously with fascism in his last term but the reality of the matter is is that biden has been so inflexible in holding positions that have been unpopular i don't know how he exactly comes out of them to basically particularly marshal a victory in this election and i do believe that not only is the nation state up for grabs The notion of what American empire means as a nation means is up up for grabs. It's a question that we really have to ask in terms of what is the role of America in the world between Ukraine and what's going on in Gaza and what's going on geographically overall.
2: Cuba. I think that's a very accurate summation of the political situation in the United States faced by Biden. Um, I think that, To second, one point that Bescal already made, I think that Gaza and the inflexible American position on supporting Israel, the blank check, that's going to severely depress the youth vote, uh, youth turnout, which has been a crucial part of the uh, Democratic coalition whenever they have been able to eke out a victory. I think that the electoral calculus has shifted in the minds of the consultant class so that certain states which were considered to be bellwethers or, um, or essential uh, in play for a past victory are now securely in one column or another, and some of them have flipped. Um, Arizona, I remember being solidly red, and um, Florida was a swing state. Now, Florida just seems to be deepening itself as this uh, essential almost second capital of conservative America, uh, while Arizona has uh, mellowed out and started going the, the route of Colorado. And I think that what we're seeing, and I also agree with Pascal when he says that so much is up for grabs, I think that the old world is, if not dead, then on its deathbed. The uh, things that we took for granted, globalization going on forever, uh, liberal democracy being essentially a, a consumerist choice between rival teams of technocrats, the long 90s, if you will, that's over. And it's very unclear what the next stage of global political evolution will look like. We, you see the crisis at the heart of democratic States, um, where institutions that are foundational to public order, the police, um, media, uh, the courts, uh, have all been politicized and compromised. The, there exists an elite privileged class and, a larger class of courtiers and professionals that serve it that are invested in the old system and have uh, plenty of resources to keep it alive I and mean, that was true in the time of louis the as well um that was true of czarist russia before world war one everything seemed fine but now there's a general crisis in all of the institutions of authority across a broad swath of the west uh, so internally, there's potential, even perhaps a need for conflict in order to establish some kind of clear direction and a clear structure for how social and economic life is going to be carried out. But we're also seeing the breakdown of the overarching global order that gave us, in one, one way or another, and in the more privileged countries at the core, Uh, lengthy experience of peace and stability without the threat of missiles dropping overhead or um, angry men with guns coming over the hills. That realm of peace has been contracting substantially. Now there's a hot war at the very doorstep of Europe. There's Uh, entire zone of perpetual conflict across the Middle East and the likelihood of a sharp great power conflict over Taiwan has only increased. So all of the conditions are there for serious conflict and all of the public goods that were supposed to be provided by the either geopolitical order or the political structure within countries, essentially peace, stability, um, a measure of shared prosperity or at least enough resources not not to have to struggle existentially within your own life. Well, those promises haven't been kept. And I think that in places where there is the political option to look outside of the incumbent state, which is not true everywhere. Um, You know, one reason why the Soviet Union broke the way it did is because uh, you couldn't look for alternatives within the communist party, or at least uh, your horizons were severely constrained. But now there's the possibility, um, as different, factions within U.S. political parties. And I think that's really where to look, uh, the intra-party politics of the U.S. As those start to um, fragment, then you might be in a situation where the next people who are empowered with the mechanisms of state have very different ideas about what America means, how it should work, and its place in the world. And that could sound hopeful. If it does, I apologize. I didn't mean it that way. Um, I meant that things are uh, can get a whole lot worse.
0: <laughs> well, here I have, a, I have another question for you guys. One of the big issues that's going to get people out to the polls is probably abortion, right? It's it's uh, when I was listening to right wing radio on my way to and from. Uh, The Bay Area here from Mexico, one of the things I heard one of the local right wingers say, because I heard local and national right wing news, good times, was that abortion was an issue they were going to lose on. They said that's the one issue that uh, or one of the issues where Republicans would vote Democrat. So is abortion enough of an issue to get people out to the polls? Is it time that we change the neoliberal slogans when it comes to abortion? Pro pro life, Uh, uh, family planning, and women's health doesn't sound as cool as choice. But do you think the overall framing is wrong? And will we ever be able to codify um, legalized abortion into federal law?
1: I think that in the flux of what, in, in the crux of actually, I said flux, in the crux of what we actually have seen in terms of word of world developments, since the road decision in the Supreme Court, I don't think that the abortion issue is going to be able to galvanize voters the way we're expecting. I think that the, that the political issue memory of Americans is not as much in stasis as people think it is. And that sometimes flashpoint issues come up that kind of tend to move people away from things that they were motivated by earlier on. And I think that the same constituencies that would have been motivated by abortion are now motivated by Palestine. And that, frankly, that they are more in, energized by that issue than they are by the abortion issue. And I think that that has not exactly been elevated to the same consciousness as that phenomenon. But I want to pivot off of something that that Kuba uh, was saying. As uh, someone who I respect, as, you know, someone who had direct information in terms of what was going on with, you know, basically state intelligence apparatus. Global empire is in a state of crisis right now. And what's, what's more dangerous, and I, I'm not, I don't say this as someone who is, you know, romantic about the state of the American empire. But what is dangerous about that is that we don't know what exactly is going to replace that. And one of the problems that I always talk about the left is that the left is always stuck in a constant position of deconstructing things. But I don't see too many people talking about building a new tomorrow with the current crisis that we see in the world today. This There seems to be no one on the left offering a new alternative to what exactly is going on in the world. I know people, who are, and I was one of them, were kind of fans of the idea of multipolarity, the notion of Russia and China working with the global south, particularly the rise of Pan-Africanism in Africa. Yes, there are interesting flashpoints where the global South, particularly in Africa, are challenging the role of the French, the rise of the BRICS, these are questions as well. But do those things actually offer a traditional, a a true actual international change of the way in which global capital functions? Why is there not some type of internal mechanism that people on the left, on the radical sphere of politics have to create paradigms that challenge the model of traditional empire? And why are those discussions being had? Simply being in a position where we just want to tear down what's not working, it's not going to function anymore. We need a new paradigm. We need new models. We need new thoughts to try to change what's going on. I really don't see that kind of creativity coming out of the left.
0: But do you think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, again, we say this, or at least I say this over and over on this show, we're dealing with a, a very young left that's still very entranced in the culture of deconstruction. I just want to say no to everything that I don't like because everything that I don't like is causing me pain in my own life and we need better policing of the current order. What do you think,
2: Huba, to Pascal's point? I think that, um, when we're talking about the international, uh, environment, hmm it's extraordinarily difficult to lay out a policy from a position of utter global irrelevance <laughs> even worse than trying to lay out a progressive position from a place of utter national irrelevance right like eventually you can get down to a small enough sample so that your you know 10 person uh, political collective actually you know, might be able to swing a mayoral election or a county comptroller poll. But globally, there are a small number of nodes of power that can move the whole around which the, the world spins. And if you are outside of influence in any of those, then um, ultimately um, you're in a incredibly challenging position. And that was true even of, um, movements like, uh, third world, uh, revolutionaries and anti-colonialism with Moscow as a pole, as a place to, um, uh, get some support, uh, to organize, even organize horizontally with, um, other similar movements. Uh, it was a completely different world than, uh, trying to do that, uh, without uh, a single potential um, friend or ally or partner uh, in a great power position. And we know who the great powers are. There's mm-hmm. China, there's India, mm-hmm. Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, we've mostly got allies of the United States, um, Japan, Western Europe, Canada. um Brazil has a certain amount of influence, and a cert- but its level of autonomy is severely constrained, even if it weren't the pressing domestic situation uh, faced by Lula da Silva that leaves little room for um, geopolitical wrangling from a position of disadvantage. And none of the great powers are offering anything constructive. We don't even have a Hillary Clinton nightmare style, China, Russia, conservative authoritarian template or, um, or block with the war in Ukraine going the way that it has. um, It would be, it would, be completely decisive and transformative if China opted to play the role of a full partner in a strategic no-holds-barred alliance with Russia, but they took a look at that reality and said, no, thanks. Um, So we have national level templates, which amount little more to, this is gonna be my sphere of influence instead of their sphere of influence. Um, A slightly different set of cronies, friends and puppets um, and the anxiety that whatever model is operated domestically um, might be one which is uh, steadily implemented elsewhere within their sphere of influence. Um, you know, if Laos or Cambodia get fully signified, mm. then you'll get the good with the bad, right? Um, absolutely intrusive surveillance society, but people will probably get healthcare. Um, then again, they might do it even more ruthlessly than the West with its model. We don't know, but there's certainly not a cause there for progressives to embrace. And the same is similarly true of Russia, Iran, you name it
1: i think that depends on your position because there are people on the left who believe that the rise of multipolarity with china and russia working together for example the fact that china has been able to breach an agreement between the saudis and the iranians to work together to diminish the conflict in yemen with the houthis some people look at that as a bright point the fact that you now have the russians working with african countries for loan forgiveness some people look that as a look at that as a bright point the fact that Russia is considering uh, being a kind of a new, a new uh, lender of record compared to the French, with the, the French CFA in French sub-Saharan Africa. Some people look at look at that as a bright point. I'm not saying I'm not expecting you to agree or not Kuba, but what I'm saying is that there are people who are on certain factions of the left who do believe that the Russia-China uh, synchronization does offer a progressive alternative. To what Western capitalism has offered in the past, and they look at that as a major means to challenge the the hegemony of Western empire.
2: Oh, I, I think that um, I think that there's something to be said to that, but it's a very imperfect view because it's it describes the situation of a relatively small number of countries in a relatively privileged position. Um, For instance, uh, there are states that are much too close to major geopolitical nodes that they're tied to empire no matter what. They're tied to somebody else's empire. You can think of uh, Mongolia, um, Belarus, um, Canada, Mm. Uh, your neighbors with a giant. You certainly don't have the ability to resist on your own, and you can see that what the international balance of power looks like, it would just be suicidal to opt for uh, the wrong alliance. So, you know, you do what you can to make your particular position of subordination as comfortable as possible. And then there are countries that um, are far enough away and from anybody and that have enough of a, uh, capable self-conscious leadership class, which is far from a given that they can take bids. Let's see what the Russians say. Let's see what the Chinese say. Let's see what the, uh, what the West has to say. Um, we can think of a few countries in Africa like that, maybe, um, Brazil and Latin America, uh, mm-hmm. to the extent that it's not trying to be a, its own force, right? It can, um, it can say no to an offer from the US and accept the Chinese alternative but if you if you're not in that position then um, you do experience either the the full violence of um, geopolitics or you acknowledge your the full loss of Euro 10 autonomy or a very significant portion. And in the West that gets negotiated a little through institutions like the EU. But um, if you consider the um, either during the Soviet union or the, the axis of resistance around um, around Iran, you have reproduced right. The same type of, Um, domination, exploitation, and coercion uh, as you do see in uh, the global level. And often those moments where you're strong enough to play both sides off against each other and look for the better deal, uh, they can be transitory. Um, As one power rises and the other declines, then you find yourself locked more and more into a single sphere of influence.
0: Pascal, I'll let you respond to that if you choose to. Well,
1: my position is, I mean, Kuba knows that, you know, I, I think that my position in terms of what the Soviet Union represented in terms of a, as a polar alternative to Western capitalism is obviously going to be much more uh, romantic than his for many historical reasons and many personal reasons as well. And that I would not necessarily say that I do agree that at a certain point the Soviet Union did become an oppressive force in terms of its capacity to bring forth what was necessary in places like like, like, like Afghanistan. But at a certain point early on in terms of when the global south was seeking liberation from colonialism it was a beacon of light for countries like cuba cuba for countries in africa and countries throughout the global south so oh the point absolutely I'm to say is that it did have a functionality and i also agree but i don't disagree with cuba that that functionality somehow became a bit skewed in time and its utility was was pretty much lost but at the same time oh, yeah. mm-hmm. at the same time that doesn't mean that right now we can't find a way to use what's being offered with the potential BRICS alliance to possibly give the global South an opportunity to create a new paradigm shift to what's being offered by the West, particularly in situations where I'm looking at francophone Africa where the French have been parasitically draining that those countries for years. But at the same time, one of the things that you said, that's absolutely true, Cuba, that's great for those countries. And that's great for people in those spaces, but that doesn't necessarily provide an alternative for people who are in the West. And that's actually a very, very good point. What is the alternative for those of us who live in the West who aren't going to have those choices anyway?
2: Yeah. And I think that, um, we'll have to see how the BRICS develop. And it could be, I'm willing to be surprised here, I would love to be surprised here, but it could be that the diplomatic process of consensus building across a large enough body like the BRICS, a large and diverse enough body where there's multiple great powers, but also um, a host of, mm, let's say, middle powers and smaller states, that may be in a kind of uh, institution, institution construction by mimesis or um, out of by praxis, that diplomatic exchange, that back and forth, the having to haggle, having to deal, but doing it all relatively peacefully, doing it all in a respectful way, doing it all without the overt threat of coercion. Um, You know, we got to get Maldives to sign off on this goddamn agricultural subsidy program. Uh, Maybe that creates, as a secondary effect, um, a less coercive, less violent, more progressive um, scaffolding. You know, at least a method for empire or for the projection of, of power internationally. I'd love to see that. I would love to see that. Um, Just looking at where the great powers are ideologically, I don't see a lot to love or to trust. Mm. Um, And so I think if any of them unilaterally were to be able to impose their template on how international power structures functioned, you know it's picture poison Not I mean going to insist can, we,
0: mm-hmm. can can we be honest that you know just because Russia might be dealing with Haiti opposed to the west it doesn't mean they're dealing with different people in Haiti right there's the
2: same class of people that's going to be dealing with the the Well, that's actually one very interesting element of the Cold War and the the way that the Soviet Union engaged with um, third countries, not just in the global south either, but because the Soviets were frozen out of polite society, uh, meaning the international community, just like being a communist or being a radical froze you out of bourgeois respectability the Soviet Union had to start its diplomatic connections with the deeply unrespectable, right? Um, whether that meant uh, racial minorities or um, often uh, the most marginalized of the working class, uh, but it was a different group of people that the Soviets were talking to than um, the, the Americans or the Western governments or any other government now it feels a lot more like um you're trying to flip oligarchs um you know get their <laughs> oligarchs in line with yours their
0: oligarchs. i mean we have to remember also to the horn of africa definitely has uh the soviet union stamp on it as far as uh regimes that it funded at one point and then funded other
2: regimes at another point and you know yeah my dad, actually, my dad always respected, um, because, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s in communist Poland, there was a very strong emphasis on global solidarity and internationalism. Mm. And so let's name all the countries with socialist governments and um, think of our comrades overseas. Mm. And some of them... What a fun game you play at the dinner table at the Kuba household. Exactly. (laughs) North Yemen? No, no, no. North Yemen was the bad one. Um, But there was um, sometimes the level of ideological cover for a local movement that had entirely nationalist uh, and anti-colonial aims was skin deep, right? The, and he admired how certain groups, like by saying the right words could get either Washington or, um, Moscow to open up the armories and give them all the guns they needed.
0: That, that is, uh, kind of quite interesting.
1: Yeah. Quite a few examples of that.
2: Um, the, uh, Ho Chi Minh famously, um, Wanted to cut a deal with the Americans long before he turned uh, to the USSR, and even Mao Zedong was meeting with American officials near the end of the war uh, to try to see if uh, try to see what kind of deal they could get with the West. There,
0: there is a book that actually talks about that called "How to Build" or "How to Hide an Empire." Um, I've actually hit up that author several times, and I hit him up a few months ago. He's responded every time, and every time he's like, "I'm just so burnt out." And he responded again with, I just hate doing public appearances. It makes me uh, uncomfortable. So sadly, uh, we can't get that author on. But a a book I've purchased twice as I've given copies away. Uh, Let's stay back to domestic issues. My two fine internationally. uh, You know,
2: I. Let's also remember... You can him. just say cosmopolitan. You can just say Jewish. But look. He's a Jew.
0: He's a Jew. Is he a Jew? He's a Jew. Kuba's <laughs> is not Jewish, by the way. Uh, he's, he's one of the good ones.
2: The, the Way to make it ugly. I mean, I, I have already made it ugly, but you have successfully made it uglier. I go full on... You know, on, I to love, on. my friend. Black anti-Semitism.
0: Kanye, you won't win this battle. I will totally <laughs> anti semite you out of existence. Pascal's trying to hide his face like I came back to this shit. <laughs>
2: no, it, it was. Uh, it's um like uh one thing that I one thing that happens when you go to college in the U.S. is you meet a lot of Jewish Americans, and because it's college everyone is worldly and smart and usually their families are upper middle class or better. And one gets the notion that that is what Jewish people are. And then like somebody invites you to meet their family and you're like, Oh, here are the normal Jews. There are a lot of them. <laughs> oh, didn't go to medical school. Ah, okay, <laughs>
0: okay. Uh, European Haitian that makes sense. versus Caribbean Polacks. Who you got? <laughs> okay, back to domestic issues, please. With my foreign comrades, for those that don't know, Pascal is of Haitian heritage, and Cuba was born in Poland, and escaped. In 1974,
2: I uh, held on to one of the rockets for the Soviet space program. I climbed into the porthole. I beat up that bitch, like uh, I stole her parachute, and I dived into Canada.
0: Now, back to domestic issues the top states for homelessness are actually quite conservative Texas and Florida where Pascal resides, uh, are in the top five. Why don't we ever hear about the fact that the most murderous states in the U.S. and the highest crime rates are conservative states as well? Why don't we hear about this, guys? Pascal, Very
1: good question. It seems like the media is fixated on making sure that the notion of crime and urban decay are a product of liberal statecraft. Mm -hmm. And it's an ideology that has been firmly fixated in the media depiction for a long time, which actually, is actually factually incorrect. And the question becomes, why are the corporate entities that finance media is so interested in that depiction? Maybe it's because capital is interested in keeping the notion of urban areas because of the fact that they have unions and they have higher pay as a fulcrum of the problems of America, while the places in the South where they can... You know, rob people of good quality of life in terms of income, or where they want to seem like Shangri La. Uh,
0: someone said because crime takes place in the blue areas of that state. Where's the blue area of Louisiana? <laughs> New Orleans? Uh, the French Quarter. <laughs>
2: All murders are in the French Quarter.
0: <laughs> That's a lovely painting.
2: Their number one import. <laughs>
0: Some of that chicory, <laughs>
2: can't even get coffee now. Cuba. I think that um, I, I think that I have a slightly different take on it, and I think that the demise of local uh, newspapers and local reporting, together with the promotion, the elevation of journalism to a PMC job, means that you have a particular type of person reporting the news one that has probably regardless of where they grew up um although they probably grew up in an upper middle class suburb they spent their college years someplace nice banal safe um and you know imbibing that particular worldview and then they probably move to a big city because that's where the journalism jobs are. That's where the jobs are more or less, um, period. If a PMC trajectory is what you're looking for. Um, and then they're kept so busy that they never go anywhere. And they only perceive crime when crime literally crosses their neighborhood. And in th- this case, we're talking about um, areas within uh, places like New York, right, San Francisco, um, places where, right, there's a journo on the spot to notice. If crime is happening in areas where they never go, then all they get are statistics, uh, maybe word of mouth passing along a particularly lurid story, but otherwise it's just the steady buzz of sad things happening to other people that you know, we all do our best to ignore. Um.
0: So for Straw McCallum, watcher of the show, that wanted to make a comment about blue cities in these areas, violent crime states. Does anyone know what number one violent crime state on the panel? You want to Mississippi. Guess? Nope. Arkansas. Number for two. Mississippi. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Tennessee is number two, Louisiana, number three, Alabama, which is close to Mississippi, uh, number four, and Alaska, number five. So to say that there are blue cities in these places, I get what you can try to mean, and maybe there's some sort of Democrat in 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 a mayoral position in some of these cities, but realistically, come on, dude, I've been to Little Rock too many times and that is not a place I would say is a bastion
2: of uh, liberalness same thing and with, a lot of it um, uh, and a lot of it too is just going to be uh, Yeah, I find it persuasive the uh, I think it's for American nations I can't remember uh, the name of the book but the um, the idea of Appalachian culture mm-hmm. having a Quicker resort to violence than, especially like the Yankees or Midwesterners. Well, um, speaking
0: of Yankees, the least violent crime cities: Vermont, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Maine. Yeah, you
2: know what else is up there Pascal? What the
0: last city is? What is it? New York.
1: Really, in terms of yeah. lowest violent crime?
0: Yeah.
1: That's shocking.
0: Same thing with property crime: New York and San Francisco, or New York and California, are lower than I thought.
1: That's
0: it, it it is it is and and it, when you start to break down places like california again you know kind of countering that point well it's all the it's the blue areas of those cities if you break down a place like california we did a show about this that nobody watched it is the red parts of california that are the most violent have the highest crime and murder rates kern county um where's the other Right-wing county
2: in California, Cuba. I oh, want to say uh, Jackson, but that's their made-up country.
0: There's <laughs> on your way to Oregon? Um, no, no, no. It's um, it's in the it's in the Central Valley. Is also um has an extremely high murder and crime rate. I Can't remember off top of my head the name of the county because there's so many right there. Um, but yep, yep. It's usually right-wing <laughs> ran cities with conservative DAs. And conservative shares. Someone says Orange County.
1: Uh,
0: Inyo County? Where's that? That's Central. Inyo Valley?
2: is. Oh, um, Indio? Is right that Indio? Indio? Yeah. Yeah, Indio is
0: down there by the border. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know where Indio is. That's where Coachella is.
2: Um, Everybody loves Coachella. San Bernardino is like a big empty one. Tulare County? Tulare is up in the Central Valley like I was saying that's the name of the
0: county Tulare
2: yeah yeah places the, um, the
0: never been these are all places Cuba's
2: never been and you the, lived in uh, May, I lived in California um, but like you know for me it was the southernmost tip of the Pacific Northwest civilization that birthed me um, rather than the an exciting gateway to Fresno County.
0: <laughs> That's what we sh- You know what we should do? We should do live shows. In uh, since Pascal, I, I should mention this before we hit the last question. Pascal recently spoke. Um, at a at a for your fraternity Haitian yeah, South
1: Florida Haitian South Florida fraternity wine. My fraternity brothers in South Florida had a Haitian Independence Day function. I spoke yesterday, Sunday, Sunday. Congratulations. Yes, and uh, it was very really good. We talked about the role of uh, the, founding, the Haitian Revolution's influence on the founders of Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. It was not bad. I know we have our different thoughts about these petite bourgeois organizations, but I'm a member of one. and They had influence in my developmental life early on, so I look forward to those memories Look, well back with those memories with some joy. So, I'm still willing to criticize what these organizations still do, but I still have uh, some affection for them.
2: We
0: should do a live. Sh- we should do live shows in all these like super red places. Like we should just do a live show in Bakersfield. That would be the greatest live show ever,
2: I think. Bakersfield. Fuck is getting I I think that. Um, if we did it live, we'd have a bunch of people who didn't know what they were getting. <laughs> I mean, it could get, it could be like the greatest thing ever. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm guessing that, uh, part of the audience will just be like, well, what's going on on Friday? Um, <laughs> Someone says, These guys look cool. What what kind of music do they play? <laughs> and that's like, oh, okay. Not what I expected.
0: That that is the goal. That is the goal. If anybody is a promoter in <laughs> Bakersfield, anywhere in Kern County, or Tulare, or Indio, that wants to bring T.I.R. live show there, Pascal Robert is now on record at coming out and doing live shows.
1: Oh, here we go. So stretch, stretch. (laughs) it's (laughs) a stretch. Stretch, Comrade.
0: already turns it Mm -hmm. on for the live show. Uh,
2: Uh, Can we? um, Have you guys seen Lovecraft Country?
0: I have. I I have the book, and I haven't opened it yet. The
2: they do a road trip, and I would love to recreate that as a tour.
0: We did a road trip to your wedding. Uh, You know what? Let's. (laughs) We did that, which caused me to, you know, not be in a relationship anymore. So, (laughs) It wasn't your fault. Um, Last question, and then we will go to the champagne room where I will be opening up the phone lines. These two gentlemen will be joining me for a little bit. We won't have that much time, but still we want to take some of your phone calls uh, in the champagne room. Hear what you guys have to say. There's been so many comments on this show. I'm sure... But you guys will want to sound off the champagne room. Now, there seemed to be a galvanizing energy around Bernie Sanders running for office in 2020 and, of course, in 2016. Can he do that again? Or is that moment over? And if so, why? Pascal.
1: I think Bernie really burned his bridges with his position on the Palestine. Quest, his Gaza Strip issue question and the mm-hmm. Palestine issue. Mm-hmm. I think that people were surprised that he came out so staunchly in favor and protecting... Uh, Israel's right to uh, respond and that kind of lost him some credibility. And second of all, I think people are really kind of burnt out with the Sanders moment. I think that his uh, he, what he offered in 2016 and 2020 was good, but uh, the moment is passing by. And I think that his politics are a little stayed for what's needed right now. We need something a little bit more uh, avant-garde.
2: Ooh, Cuba. I mean, I I think he's great. I would happily make him Tribune and Dictator of the People's Free State of Landbackia. Um, <laughs> I think that would be wonderful, right? Like I have a great deal of respect and admiration for Bernie Sanders, and I think that he towers over the his rivals on the right or um, in the Liberal Democratic camp. I also think that he is too old um, to catch fire the same way. He's a known quantity. Uh, nothing succeeds like success, but nothing fails like failure. Mm. The quote a professor of mine. And he, uh, he couldn't do it. So why now, especially since there hasn't been a Proximate development that would reignite him make him relevant again and he also and I don't mean to to single him out because what can one man do but He came in without a institutional scaffold Mm. just based on an extraordinary character and a Willingness for people to new people to trust him but he didn't create a structure. There isn't a, an organization behind him. Uh, he didn't capture the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. At best, there's offices here and there. There's the squad and some people in Congress who call themselves progressives, but it's not going to be enough to deliver him personally or even king make within the Democratic Party the democratic centrists moderates and establishment ultimately are going to wrangle among themselves to the exclusion of the progressives uh, to d- decide whether it's going to be Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg or a reptile to be named labor later. <laughs> but um, at best they'll um, find the progressives afterwards and ask them, Hey, you have, a lot of followers on Instagram. Could you retweet, please? I'll make you cabinet secretary of something not important. Um, And so, yeah, that's, that's how I think it's going to go. I think that um, somebody who had stronger politics, not, I'm not even saying stronger than Bernie Sanders. I'm saying stronger politics than um, what the democratic party can muster. Right now, officially, they would do better. That would be a more promising route to a democratic electoral victory. But I don't think that electoral victory is what the Democratic Party uh, apparatus stands for. What they're interested in, it's a um, it's a parasocial club around a group of very powerful donors and a group of very powerful incumbent political leaders. And it, if you think about it, right, if you're on the private staff of, um, someone like, uh, Elon Musk, or if you're the head of government relations for Facebook, you, you're basically inside the power structure, um, as much as the aid to, um, the head of the Senate armed forces committee and that's, it's load bearing for the political system. If you knock that out, then people would have to scramble to either reestablish new relationships or try something else. But if that's where you want to go in life, you choose the democratic party, and as a result, the party is staffed with people who are committed to the party and, um, and not to either winning elections or to a particular ideological position.
1: Or changing the status quo.
2: Well, certainly, certainly not that.
0: I want to say thank you guys so much for joining me tonight. My co host Pascal Robert Cuba, Deep State Cuba, Deep State Cuba will be joining us in the Champagne Room briefly. If you are a patron, the link is already up. Thank you guys for checking this out. If you want to join us for the call in and tell us what we got wrong or throw your two cents in, become a patron. You get access to the Champagne Room past and present, movie nights, and more. Uh, If you have the means and feel so inclined, Uh, and want to see more of this program, become a patron. There's TIR merchandise you can wear that is definitely going to piss off your family during holiday season. Uh, Also, if you're listening to this show on Apple, you can subscribe to the channel and get access to the Champagne Room as well. Don't forget to like and subscribe. It goes a long way to keep the show going. To all the patrons already in existence, We will see you in the T-I-R-V-I-P, and we are out. Out.